0: genealogy here, and this is the genealogy that most people believe of Joseph, of Joseph then, of being the, I guess for lack of a better word, the stepfather to Jesus. So if you look at it here, what I want to focus on is starting in, well, will start in verse one real quick. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah. We've talked about that. Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Most of the time by then we quit reading and we say, I'm not going to read Matthew and we go to John or something like that. There's a reason why this is in here, because guess what we're going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk about verse three. Judah begat Perez and by Tamar. Now it's kind of interesting. There are four women mentioned in the genealogy here of Jesus, of Joseph, if you would, please. Verse 3, you have Tamar, which is kind of interesting right there. Verse 5, you have Rahab. Verse 6, by default, you have Bathsheba. It really doesn't mention her. It says, David the king begot Solomon by her, who had been the wife of Uriah, depending on your translation there. And then we also have uh, Ruth mentioned in verse 5. So we have Ruth. Bathsheba, Tamar, and Rahab. So tonight we're going to talk about how Tamar beget Perez and Zerah. Now that sounds kind of dry, to be honest with you. But the whole story behind this in Genesis 38... Genesis 38 is a weird chapter. When I was preparing this lesson, I kind of thought, Lord, why did you have Genesis 38 on the night of the fellowship meal? You know, last last Wednesday was a little bit lower attended. That would have been a good Genesis 38 week. Instead, we have Genesis 38 tonight, because if you don't understand what Genesis 38 is, Genesis 38 is this, Tamar marries one of Judah's sons. We don't know what happened, but Judah's son did something wicked, the Bible says, so he's killed. The next son then marries Tamar, because that's what you were supposed to do. If you were the unmarried brother, you took your older brother's wife to kind of be respectful of keeping the line going. And so what happens is the second brother then married Tamar, but what happened is that he didn't want to have any kids with her. So as they would sleep together, he would take steps to keep them from having children. So God didn't like that, so he was killed too. So now we're down to the third son. Well, Judah then says in Genesis 38, he goes, Basically, I don't want my third son to be killed, so I'm just going to tell Tamar my third son's not old enough. we we'll have to wait till he's older, and then you can marry him. So what happens is his third son gets old enough to marry Tamar, and Judah never marries him off. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She goes and stands beside the wall, excuse me, stands beside the road and dresses up like a prostitute. So then Judah walks by. He sees the prostitute and he says, how much? And so they make a deal. They sleep together and then she gets pregnant. Well, then she's brought before Judah and says, your daughter-in-law Tamar is a harlot. So then he brings her before him and he says, you're a harlot. He goes, who's the father of this child? And she goes, you are the father of this child. This is like the biggest soap opera chapter. People are dying left and right. People are with each other that shouldn't be with each other. This is what we're talking about tonight. This is why you gave up a Wednesday evening, is to come out here to do this. My point, though, and I struggled with this, because I didn't know if I should tell you the point at the beginning, because then you guys will hear the point and leave, or if I should save the point to the end and have you guys wonder what in the world are we talking about. So I'm giving you the point at the beginning, so that way you can take off. The point is this. It doesn't matter who you are, Or what you did, God still loves you and wants to use you. Look at this genealogy. Judah, the man that goes out and buys prostitutes, beget Perez by Tamar, who acted like a prostitute. And Perez, I don't even know how to explain this. Perez's dad is Judah and his mom is Tamar, but Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. So I spent way too much time this afternoon trying to figure out how that all happened. I don't even know what to say to that. The daughter-in-law slept with the father-in-law, which produced a son, and he's in the genealogy here of Jesus. So we jump down a little bit. We have uh, Rahab mentioned in verse 5. Rahab, we all know what she was, right? She was a prostitute. We then have Ruth in verse 5, who Ruth wasn't even Jewish. She was a Moabite. And then we jump down to verse 6, and we have Bathsheba, who Bathsheba, we know what she did. She had an affair with David, and her husband got killed. So there's four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Two are prostitutes, one had an affair, and the one is not even Jewish. And your Messiah came through that. Does that not show that God says, I don't care who you are or what you did, I still love you and want to have a relationship with you? That's the point of tonight. So when we read through Genesis 38 and we see this mess, this mess, God says, I still can use this. I just got three verses I want to share with you real quick. Zach, can you put that up there real quick? Just a couple verses to remind you of this as we go through this. First one there, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new... Excuse me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Philippians 3.13, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead in our last one here. Galatians 6.15, What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. You sense a theme here. When you get saved, you are now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There's a theme here that's going on. Now, here's the thing about this. You can turn the lights back on, Zach, there. The thing about this, some of you came in here tonight... And you have a past. You have baggage that you have brought in by decisions that were made 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And the world will not let you let go of those choices that you made. When you still walk into certain places, certain houses, certain whatever, they look at you with this idea of who you were rather than who you are in Christ. And you know what happens? We as Christians are sometimes the worst at that. We completely understand the forgiveness of Jesus, but yet when a believer has the audacity to sin, oh, we'll never let them forget that. We're new creations in Christ. And second one, Philippians three thirteen, forgetting the past and looking forward. Paul wrote that. If anybody had a past to forget about, that was Paul, the guy that used to round up Christians and have them killed. The last one's just so simple, Galatians six. You're a new creation. So the purpose of going through all this, this long introduction, is as we go through this story and we see the stupidity of Judah and Tamar and Perez and all this awful stuff happening, we stop here and think how or why would the Lord use them and they're the ones that brought genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. If anything, is a picture of grace of who Christ does, I should say Christ is and what he does for you. So with that introduction, introduction, jump back to Genesis 38. Let's talk about this and talk about the details of it. This is kind of an interesting chapter, like I said, just kind of thrown in here. But it sets the scene a little bit for basically showing this family is the dysfunctional of all dysfunctional families. You may think your family is dysfunctional. You cannot compare to Jacob's family in no way whatsoever. Verse 1 of Genesis 38, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Harath. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur, and she conceived again and bore a son, and he, she called his name Onan. Then she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was a Chezeb when she bore him. Now, then Judah took a wife for Ur's firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, and marry her, and raise her up her hair to your brother. But Oman knew, verse 8, that the hair would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife, that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give her an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also." Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, to my son Shelah's grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now it's kind of interesting here, because what you have, and we're going to make a little couple side points on this. We've already talked about the big picture. It's interesting that he says in verse 8, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up a heir to your, heir to your brother. This is in the law. This is in Deuteronomy 25. Here's the catch. The law is not given for about another 450 years. It's very similar to when we studied out Noah way back in the beginning of Genesis when God told Noah, take the clean and unclean animals. How did Noah know what was clean and unclean? How did he know to offer sacrifices? How did he know to build an altar? What a lot of people believe is this institution of the law. What God has asked for us was already ingrained into Adam and was passed down. And really, what you have here then in Genesis, excuse me, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is really now this written record of what's supposed to be doing. You see them already doing some of these things beforehand, before the law was even given. So, we don't know, and there's no even reason why to speculate. We don't know what happened in verse 7, what error did. We don't know. He was wicked inside the, the Lord. You may say, this sounds mean, doesn't it? I and mean, seriously, don't we as Christians always present this loving God? God loves you. And I already said already, no matter what your past is or who you are, God loves you. And then it's like, oh, isn't that great that God loves me? And then I go read verse 7, and it's like, oh, Lord's just killing people left and right. God loves us, but he also demands righteousness. See, here's the deal. The Lord already knew that Judah was going to have the lineage of the Messiah, right? So therefore, God, what he's doing here in verse 7 is basically saying to Ur, you know what? You're not capable of carrying this burden. You're not capable of carrying this banner of responsibility of the Messiah come through your line. So you're out. Onan, he wanted all the pleasure of being with her without any of the responsibility. Verse 9, he's out. So God says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands here a little bit, if you will. So this is the setup which gets us to this. Now, there's one other little side point we need to make. Verse 11, Judah said to Mara's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah has grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. Verse 11, you see here Judah making a decision on fear, not on faith. And you know we make this comment all the time out here. You have to walk in faith, not fear. If you walk in fear, you're not walking in the will of God because God has not given you a spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 So when you make a decision based out of fear that I'm going to do this because if I don't, this is going to happen. Or I'm going to make this because if I do this, this is going to happen. You're no longer in the will of the Lord because you're making that decision on fear. Rather than stopping and praying, saying, Lord, what have you guided me to do? And what happens is when we get concerned about situations, we start watching the bank account a little bit too much, the checkbook balance a little too much. When we start worrying about situations at work or at home, and we get fearful about it, we start drifting away from the Lord. Because we're making decisions on fear and not faith. Judah right here is basically saying, I've got to keep my boy safe. I don't know what's up with tomorrow, but anybody that marries tomorrow dies. So, I'm not going to do that. So he makes the decision based on fear, not faith. And I'm telling you right now, if you make decisions based on fear, not faith, it will never be fruitful. It will lead to more confusion. It will lead to more fear. It will lead to more bitterness. It will just move you away from the Lord. What happens? Verse 12, Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Taman. He and his friend Herat the light. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear a sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shiloh was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. That's what they did back then, is the harlots would stand along beside the road, cover their face. Verse 16, he turned to her, by the way, and said, Please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Now we have the negotiation. You get a young goat out of this. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Will you give me some type of assurance that you're going to send me a goat? Obviously Judah didn't carry goats in his pockets to pay for this. So verse 18, then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. This would have been his own personal identification, if you will. This had been the driver's license of thousands of years ago. Only Judah had this. And then he gave them in her gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 20, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There is no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of this place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. Basically, Judah says, Hey, she didn't want to take the payment. That's her choice. If she wants to keep the cord and signet ring, that's up to her. Now, there is so much to talk about, and I can't find anything good to say. Mm-hmm. Judah is basically saying, I'm going to let the flesh control me. Tamar is basically saying, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Now, you got to remember, just because this ends Well, with the birth of Perez and God uses that doesn't mean that God is okaying the events in this chapter. This is a problem that we have in the Bible. People read certain passages in the Bible and they say, well, since it's in the Bible, it must be okay. No, the Bible records everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when I read in the Bible about a guy with numerous wives, it's not okay for me to go have numerous wives. When I read about a guy that's willing to go into a prostitute, no, that's not okay. It's recording what happened for us to learn by. Paul wrote in Corinthians that these Old Testament examples are for there for us to learn a lesson. Sometimes the lesson of what to do, and sometimes the lesson of what not to do. You can't defend Judah here. You can't defend Tamar here. There's nobody so far that's doing anything right. So what happens? Verse 24, It came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, "Tomorrow your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she was with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Oh, wow. You know where this is going. Now, let's just make an assumption here. Because everybody that comes on Wednesday night obviously has it figured out. It's the Sunday morning people that really don't know what they're doing. Because we on Wednesday night, the end of verse 24, we would never ever, right, say anything out of emotion like that. I mean, we would never ever say something without thinking it through, praying it through, making sure that it was biblical, making sure it was Christ-like, right? Those are the 830 people on Sunday. So, but what happens here in verse 24, Judah's response, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, can you really disagree with that? She's pregnant because she was acting like a prostitute. That's not real Christ-like. Not real Christ-like at all. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I'm with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Verse 25, I can't defend Tamar's choices, but you've got to like her in verse 25. She played this pretty well. If you're going to go by the world's standards, she played this pretty well. So she brings out Judah's stuff, verse 26. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. You also have to give Judah credit in verse 26. I sent, I was wrong, she's right, I'm wrong. Verse 28, verse, verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold twins were in her womb. So it was when she was giving birth that one of them put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. You have to remember, biblical times, the firstborn carries so much responsibility, so much weight, so much blessing. So he's number one, verse 29. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez, verse 29 there. And that means breach or breakthrough. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, you ever wonder why God puts little details like that in there? I mean, if we truly believe that every word in the Bible was holy and inspired, what's the purpose of that? The purpose of that seems to be that God is working out these details even when we don't see it. He had a plan, and the plan was this guy, Perez, was going to be in the lineage of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1. Now, that, that's what was going to happen. Does that mean that everything happening before that time God was okay with? God's okay with what Tamar did? God's okay with what Judah did? God's okay with what Onan did and Er did? No. This is the beauty of the Lord. Some of you are sitting here tonight and if we would go over your life and write down all the choices you made, the good, the bad and the ugly. You made some choices that were that were wrong. There's no way around that. It was sin. God still used some of those choices and said, I can still bring glory out of this. Isn't that amazing? Think back to Matthew 1. Four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Two acted like a prostitute. One had the affair, and the other one wasn't even Jewish, a Moabite. God still said, I can use them. That's the whole point of all those verses. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And that's the beauty of this chapter. This chapter 38 is a chapter of soap opera and drama. And it looks like some awful lifetime movie. But yet, it's really biblical because God says, I'm doing this. I'm moving and working even when you don't see it. Moving and working even when you don't see it. Now, we've got a couple other points here to make just as we close up. But does anybody have any quick questions, comments here about anything that we've covered thus far before we move on to the next thing? Okay. If you could, with me, turn to the book of Habakkuk. And don't go to the front of your Bible to find out where it's at. I'll give you a quick hint. It's on page 825. So, How can it look different? <laughs> I know. I was, I was trying to make a joke. I don't know what it's on yours. I'm not... I'm not that good. But if you did notice, my cup tonight is the girl with the hula on, because we were out of white styrofoam cups, so if you're wondering there. (laughs) Habakkuk chapter 3. Alrighty, you may not have been the person that made the choices. You may have loved ones right now that are making choices, and you're looking at them saying, this is a mess. They are living a Genesis 38 life right now. It is an absolute mess. So with that being said, what can we learn from this? What can we do with this? Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk is just snuck in there right in between the books of Zephaniah and Nahum. Habakkuk is a really honest book. And we did a study on Habakkuk years ago. And i got to be honest, it was one of my favorite books, uh, studies that we ever did. Because Habakkuk basically starts off the study saying, uh, Lord, why? What, what, what's going on here? I don't see what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing. In fact, he comes out and says, I don't like what you're doing. So I'm asking you, Lord, why? Now, let's be honest. Have you ever had a moment like that spiritually? You have loved ones going through a mess, be it spiritually, emotionally, or physically, and you're sitting there saying, Lord, why? I've shared this story with you before, but I'll repeat it. There was a gal that used to come out here, and she did not make some good choices. There's no defending that in any way whatsoever. But her life just kept getting steadily worse and worse and worse, sometimes by choices of her own, sometimes by things beyond her control. So she called me up one time, and some stuff had happened. It was really dramatic, and it was really drastic, I should say. And I remember I got off the phone with her, and my first question to the Lord was, Why? Why are you doing this? You know, I thought of that passage where Paul wrote, The goodness of God leads to repentance, right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that, shouldn't that be the way everybody comes to know Jesus? My life was so wonderful, I just decided to accept Christ. But I just heard a pastor say today, he goes, he's never heard anybody say, Wow, Lord, those sunny days brought me closer to you. It's actually the rainy days that bring us closer to the Lord. So my point is this, as I'm sitting there saying, Lord, why? Why are you allowing this to happen in her life? And I remember the Lord speaking to me just saying, These are the things she has to go through to get her attention. Now, I don't know if you've got a loved one going through something right now, and you're really kind of sitting there saying, Why? Maybe you're going through stuff right now, and you're kind of saying, why? Habakkuk would agree with you. Why? So he goes through three chapters of this. It's kind of this give and take with the Lord of why is all this stuff happening. Finally, Habakkuk ends it up like this. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flocks may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk basically says, fine, there's no figs, there's no fruit, there's no olive, there's no food, everything's falling apart. But, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says, my why questions are not being answered. It doesn't make any sense to me. But I realize, verse 18, I will still rejoice in the Lord and join the God of my salvation. This leads me to my worship point that I like to make out here a lot. So often we look at worship as God has earned my praise for what he has done this week. So we show up on Sunday, we show up at Wednesday, and we start singing these praise songs. And basically what we're thinking is, okay, Lord, I don't know if you've earned it this week. Oh, it's been a good week, you've earned my singing, you've earned my praise. When really worship is supposed to be praising for God, for just who God is. We've got to remember that. What Habakkuk is saying here is, no matter what happens, verse 18, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because He's the God of my salvation. Now, I've said that to people in very difficult times, verse 18, when they tell me they have nothing to live for, and their life is awful, the life is miserable, and no one else has ever had such a horrible life as them. So I would say to them, have you accepted Christ as your Savior, are you saved? Yes, I am. Then you can rejoice in your salvation. That's just the simplicity of it. Do you ever see these Christians that just walk around and they're basically just constantly grouchy and grumpy? And they're like, my goodness, where's the joy of your salvation? And usually it's something like, well, if you knew what my life was like. Yeah, I know what your life was like. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You're going to heaven for all of eternity. Rejoice. Rejoice. Well, I don't can. not I don't have any strength to rejoice. Verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. So once again, I don't know what you brought in tonight. Maybe you are the Tamar that has the past, that has the history. You're a new creation in Christ. You're a new creature. Paul says you put the past behind you and you move forward. Focus on that. Or maybe you have a loved one that is in the middle of a Genesis 38 situation right now, and their life is a complete soap opera drama, and they're, your Lord, why? They need to learn, or I should say you need to learn, that no matter what's going on, verse 18, you will rejoice in who the Lord is. And verse 19, His strength will be your strength. Genesis 38 is kind of an interesting chapter that's thrown right in the middle of our story of Joseph, but yet it really sets the scene saying God is moving and working behind the scenes even when we don't see it, when we don't realize it. Joseph is about to get thrown into prison. He's going to be accused of a crime he did not commit. Eventually, he's going to end up being second in charge of Egypt. God is moving and working even though we don't see it. Same thing here with Genesis 38. This whole Judah, Tamar, harlot thing, yeah, we can't agree with that. But out of that comes Perez, and God uses Perez then in the lineage of Joseph in Matthew 1, which is actually there the lineage of Jesus as well. So... Trust, no matter what's going on. Anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up with a word of prayer? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, if there's someone here tonight that just can't move past the past, show them. Show them that they are a new creation in you.